Hello and welcome to the If We Knew Then podcast. I'm Stephen Sox. And I'm Lori Sox. And today we're joined by director, producer, Julianne Robinson. You may most recently know her from her work on Bridgerton, but in 2007 she directed a film called Coming Down the Mountain. And today she is back with a deeper conversation about the movie, as well as the importance of inclusion and finding a place in the classroom for every child. Please welcome again. Julianne Robinson. Julie, it's so great to see you. Thank you for joining us again, Julie. Oh, you're welcome. It's so great. We're so happy that you could come back. Oh, no, absolutely. Absolutely. I, in fact, what I did was watch the movie because I hadn't seen it for about 10 years the last time we spoke. So I was quite intrigued to ask you some questions as well. But um, however you want to kick off, up to you. That would be a great conversation because actually right at the beginning, I wanted to ask, can we revisit the coming down the mountain to talk a little bit deeper about the process of the story and the story? So I think that's that's perfect. Okay, great. I was thinking about it from your perspective and I was thinking, was there any time in it when you were watching it thinking, gosh, this is really offensive. I'm taking offense now. I'm offended by this because it is so kind of kind of hard hitting, very much from the Nicholas Holt's perspective. So that's what I was thinking retrospectively when I was watching it, thinking, oh, gosh, I hope this is all right. I hope it's not offensive. Can I start by saying I think that's a wonderful question, because as parents of a child with Down syndrome, when presented with even an article or uh, a short or, or, or you know, sometimes a, a big film like this, sometimes we go in a little squeamish, you know, kind of concerned about how is this going to, to be presented. And, and it must have been probably some pressure for you and for the production that you want to represent this community and in, in the best way possible. And so actually before seeing the film, Lori had seen it first, and then I just I asked some questions, and she was just so excited about it. But what I did for me, and you can, I know you want to answer too, Lori. I I wasn't squeamish at all in the in the film because I saw a good representation of a human being and a family dichotomy that was uh, legitimately quote unquote normal. It was a process of of arguments and 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 love and and betrayal and jealousy and despair and and happiness and so. That is what I personally wanted represented for the family in general and, and also for the character uh, that had Down syndrome. I, I was happy with his interaction with his family and how, how he was portrayed. And we did have a comment about, you know, the low expectation of Tommy. And my immediate answer was, that's the truth. Tommy was actually portrayed in in a way that was so truthful because you could just see his potential oozing. You could see his wholeness in, 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 every, in every moment. And then you could see how that was squashed and limited 
whether it be his brother just having assumptions about him and getting frustrated and angry uh, because of what he's, he's experiencing with his parents and how his parents treat him, whether it's his parents who doing their best still, you know, have him under a a very small microscope, and they're led by their fear, right? There's so much fear there. And, and that's the truth. Especially when we started out on this journey, there was so much fear because there was so much unknown. And, and I thought that you just portrayed the hard stuff in a real matter, you know, that it was, it was just true. And, and the truth isn't always kind if it's not what we're open to. And, and able to see, you know. Um, yeah, as far as stereotypical, it was it was, was opposite of that. It was the opposite. In so many ways. Just going down point by point, the, the sibling rivalry, him having to move schools. Parents do that all the time they, because they're seeking support and education for their child. So families are always just on that journey trying to, and it does. I, I thought it was great because it talks about what families do to support their children and how they have to work as a team. And, you know, we're always striving to get it right, but sometimes we make mistakes. Because I was wondering about specifically the scene at the bus stop when Nick really lays into Tommy. I've forgotten about that. I mean, that's hard to watch, actually. And then at the campsite... I remember shooting, there's, there's a scene at the campsite where they're trying to build a tent. And I remember very clearly Nick saying to me, Julianne, we're not going to get this, are we? We're not going to get it because look, the sun's going down. <laughs> and then we shot it in like 15 minutes so fast. But that's where Nick is so raw and he's so kind of uh, hateful. He's absolutely hateful towards his brother. And I'd forgotten those elements and I felt like, gosh, that's hard for me to watch now, 10 years after shooting it, then how hard it would it be for you to watch? Because it was is very raw in terms of the, the emotions and how, you know, that, well, that teenage whole body experience of love and hate <laughs> Uh, is really in there in Nick's performance and honestly hand on heart that's down to him but I was curious how you felt watching those scenes in particular because those scenes were the scenes that I felt like would be hard to watch and I thought gosh did we go too far we see things I think in our household that sometimes reveal itself and are hard to watch and it's truth I always bring it back in myself is that if my kids are doing things that you typically hear of, of kids do, especially a teenager and a 11 year old, right? So there's going to be some elbowing to shut up or, or a punch here and there. We just or, experienced or, this last week. <laughs> or yelling at, at each other or, you know, uh, I hate you or something. It could be anything. I haven't heard that actually, but I, I, I think the elbowing probably, happened. Yeah, the elbowing happened the other night. But to me, that's a typical sibling relationship that, happens it's it's a real thing so it can be difficult it's difficult for us sometimes to see our much smaller son who has a disability we can't get it out of our heads I mean Sophia has known her entire life somebody with down syndrome I went 35 years without knowing anybody with down syndrome at least as intensely as I know my son and so I still have residual feelings that I'm that I probably work through I try to make sure I pay 
as much attention to my daughter as my son, but I think you do that as a parent with any two kids or three kids or whatever you have. And so no, it felt real, but yeah, hard to watch. Yeah, it could be. Yeah. But that's, that's, that's cinema. I think maybe the the reason why I'm going to go back to truth, the reason why it might be hard to watch and probably very hard to watch for other people is because it's the truth. Right. And when, first of all, when you're at the bus stop and he, and he leaves them there and he's yelling at his brother, I just think it's real. And I think it enables us to see Tommy and to see how he gets his feelings hurt just like everybody else. And I don't think, I think that a lot of times people will say stuff about individuals with Down syndrome as if they have no feelings. Like the things that, I mean, the things that have come out of people's mouths to us as parents, it's phenomenal. So it's real. And and I think anytime I express stories of things that have been said to us, I mean, I had a woman at the park when Liam was an infant and Sophia was with me and she told me that there was a place I could take him in Arizona that they take care of babies like them because most people don't want them anyway. And she said it to me in front of my daughter. And she said it as honest and truly as like, oh, here, I'm going to help you. Like she meant it from the sincerest place in her heart. So that's real. It's absolutely real. And when it comes to a relationship between uh, siblings, brother and sister or brother and brother, whatever it is, that if you portray it in any other way than true, then it's actually discrimination. You're not being fair to anyone. And I think as a sibling, I know it was powerful for Sophia to see that the feelings that she probably has bottled up for a good 13 years, you know, because she'll get mad and she'll be like, oh, Liam. But she never expresses the frustration that I know she has or, you know, even to where like she could speak about it, like jealousy or whatever it is things being unfair. She, she had it so bottled up and I've, and I saw it give her a little bit of freedom to say, I'm allowed to feel these same feelings that all my friends have about their brothers and sisters. I can feel them. And I just want to say kudos and such thanks to Nick, because that's a hard place to go. We talked about that last time. It's a really hard place to go because people might judge you, but it's real and it's true. It's absolutely founded in, you know, maybe some people do it differently. Maybe there are those angelic siblings that we definitely have, have heard about that and talked to that are like, I've always, you know, felt like this and that, but there's the other side is absolutely true and real. And you couldn't really say I'm pushing you off the mountain without showing the frustrations along the, you have to you can't just say because if he just went up there and just threw him off mm, the mountain that's that a different sense. person yeah. right but he's trying to deal with all of his feelings and they're super huge and honestly siblings aren't always given a venue to discuss those like those feelings everybody wants to know how great you are because of this relationship which it does it has such a profound impact but it shouldn't squash their journey mm-hmm. you know And Julianne, you know, neither one of those scenes were bullying to me, but Mm -mm. bullying is a legitimate factor in the community. It it isn't as documented as probably it should be, but I I hear it and see it all the time. And yeah, maybe we need to see stories of of someone with Down syndrome being treated poorly. Because they do get treated poorly, you know, they get and and because for a lot of time they, they don't have a voice or it's not witnessed or people take advantage of their good nature. Yeah, Tommy has a voice in this. He has that's, a great voice. That's what's so voice. beautiful about it. Is I'm telling you, my favorite line voice. is when he says, no, they don't like you because you're usually a juror. I mean, <laughs> because it's like, that's the truth. It has or when he, just, when he just stares at him and goes, why are you staring at me? Yeah. 
<laughs> I, I, yeah. Liam, I Liam actually quoted that, that a few times. Right? Like, like he the, liked that. The next that, week, he would line. like when when Sophia would look at him, he'd go, "Why are you staring? Why are you staring at me?" <laughs> and it was, but it was beautiful because that's the point where I realized he never sees anybody with Down syndrome in any of his programs. You know, any of his movies, there aren't very many movies that in a positive light, like you said before, a lot of times when someone with Down syndrome is portrayed, it is in a very inspirational manner or the propagating of a stereotype. And that's what people see. And so that's what people think is the reality of it. So that continues on and on and on. So no, I commended you. And that's one of the things that I liked about the movie so much is that it was, it was honest and I don't know, just their conversation, if I'm trying to remember when they were building the tent, just that conversation and how frustrated he was getting with his brother and just... Basically, the content of it was, you've never had to do anything in your life. Why can't you help me build this tent? Why can't you do something? Why do you just sit around and let everybody look after you? Come on, get up, help me. It was that kind of content, I think. He was just so frustrated. I think that's lovely because Liam is one of the hardest working people I know and and people don't know. They just really don't know and I think that I think it what just What they see is they may see some some assistance because people always want to help. Yeah, we've discussed this before where uh, people always want to help him and and uh, do things for him or give him things or food and and it's just people don't really know uh they they see somebody, they care for them and they want to help maybe help uh, just mm-hmm. you know connect and so it's like i'll do this so it's okay buddy you know what and so he gets a lot of that and i can see how a sibling or some someone even Sophia from the outside would go hey well i don't i don't get that yeah. but he's working his butt off as well what do you mean he's working his his butt off well i think of school right away well i think of since liam, liam was born at 30 weeks and he started PT physical therapy like a week later and he was and like like honestly building his body from the inside like because he had to have his lungs and all of these things that he was constantly like he was building his body was building and then he went straight into PT and from like you know the whole time that he was an infant he was in PT OT and then when he finally started to formulate sounds he was in speech so he's been working really like harder than and anybody I've ever met. And, and even when he works on things that his peers work on, like we, we were talking about this earlier too, the cello, he just started the cello. He has to push down the strings so hard and it's so hard for his hands because he has a low tone mm-hmm. and it's something that he works on all the time in OT that it's it's painful. I mean, he stops, he shakes out, he's like, ow, and he gives his hand a kiss. Initially, when he first started, he was kind of like, wow, this is this is rough. Well, he's pushing through this for the sound to please his teacher to please his parents and himself he uh, and, likes and it it's it's plays. he does like it but i mean I, like any kid they, they need to be you know they don't want to practice every day but <laughs> you know you get your kid to practice the instrument and it's a tough practice and and he he does the work i mean that's yeah in in school in fact um with math or science or english we're front loading him at all times so when you when he's not even in school all summer, he's We're always him, worked all oh, summer. summer. He works all summer, but he gets front loaded the information so that he's better prepared. But school, you know, when we talk about that, he sits there, he has his his laptop for his Zoom. We have this big computer here that will will work with him on the Schoology and also all of his supports that he does throughout the week, speech and OT and and um, 
rec therapy and APE. And then he has his aide. And he's not he's not allowed the same liberties as other students. Like all day long, I'll hear, you know, the teacher calling out someone's name like seven times and being like, are you there? Or what are you doing? And then they'll come back and they'll be like, oh, my pencil dropped or like, but he doesn't have that. He has to be ready at all times. He answers, he has to be ready to answer every question always. And he just works. He works so hard, you know? Where does that come from, that, that drive to work? We've been, since we've had to fight for his education, the, uh, the, you know, since he was three, we've had to fight for inclusion and his education. So uh, we've, we've fought for those supports. And since he's not in, since he's doing distance learning, we're able to give him those supports. Because to be honest, in school, there were a few years where he was supposed to still be getting these same supports, like the front loading and, and um, all the accommodations, and they wouldn't. They, they would just kind of let him float because it's extra work. So since when we've been in distance learning, we're there and we can break down his assignments and we can, you know, and, and give them to him with the accommodations. And because Liam needs repetition. So if, if, it, if one kid's going to learn even just uh, times tables, if we start with that, Liam may need to go over the times tables 20 or 30 times more than I, I remember going over with Sophia until it clicks. But we do that each session over and over. I mean, he may need more sessions for that. So we'll we'll prep him because we want him to to be on grade level to learn, right? And you can see that if you if you do repetition, it clicks. So to not do that effort um, seems irresponsible. It's not a torture for him. I just think that he knows a different work ethic because of it. He doesn't. I think he thinks everyone else probably goes over their timetables that many times until it, it goes. And he's not embarrassed by when he doesn't get it or he's not frustrated about it not happening right away. I have to make sure I'm not frustrated because that that's not going to help the situation at all. I you know we, we just breathe into it. And if he doesn't get it, we move on to the next time. And when he gets it, it's a big celebration. And so we're, we know his potential. We know that this stuff will just click. So his way of learning is different. His way of learning is repetition, which takes more time and more effort. Yeah. And I think if if it was something different to where we're making him do something that he's not capable of, but from the time he was born, he worked really hard. When he was in preschool, he had a great inclusive preschool. He was working with his tablet. We, we saw his, his brain developing. And if it was beyond what the scope of his ability was, then absolutely. We always said, we're going to let Liam show us who he is. But the difference between since he's been at home learning and getting the supports to access his curriculum and to really learn, you see it. Like he brings books down to me and and we read together and he he likes math. He enjoys being able to retell a story. He just enjoys being present and being able to participate. And it's it's really great to see that. And to be able to support him, because eventually he's going to get to a point that he just does it on his own, right? But right now, while he needs the supports, we just, we, we do that for him. So that's a long answer to why, why does he work so hard? Because that's just, his butt. He, he busts his butt because he has to, you know, he has to because at the same point of there being no expectation for him, there's also no room for failure for him when it comes to school. Like there's that want to always remove him from the curriculum and deny him a high school diploma when he gets older. But there's also that 
well, he doesn't have the same space to fail and to learn. Yeah, it's interesting having kids with dyslexia. You get some of that um, because they, it's just harder for them to access the curriculum much harder and they get tired. And so I, in a sm small way, I identify with what you're talking about, but I don't think might've got the same work ethic, <laughs> perhaps. Um, but it is, it, I think it's something that isn't really recognized that certain people have to work harder than other people, <laughs> just generally. We've talked about it as well, that being presented in an IEP of, and told all of the things that Liam can't do, we have admitted to the fact that it can become a, I'll prove you wrong situation. You walk out of the IEP and go, they're saying he's not doing this and that. Well, you know what? Let's do the work, Liam, let's do it. And you prove that you can do it. And then you're like, wow, where do I go from here? You just, you just do it, you know, like, <laughs> but it becomes kind of a prove you wrong thing. And it, I don't know, I guess that's two, two fold of, of good and bad, I guess, but. Yes. When we first started the situation, we were so, so taken aback with the stance of the school district that was really free before they knew us of their, their opinions of what he, what he was and what he could do that because we had, I mean, that was at five, he was going into kindergarten, five or six, but we'd already seen five years of work. So it's like, that's foolish. And if we wouldn't have fought, and if we wouldn't have done the work, they would have been more happy to just put him in that box. And it would have been, they would have created what they were saying, because that's what happens, is they say there's no potential there, and then they put them in a box, and then they remove them from the general population. And then they create what they've said was going, and they can say, see, look, he, they can't read. Well, did you teach him to read? Did you find what works and take the time? So we knew, we knew right away that we were going to, to do that. That was, that was what we were going to do. Do you and find that that's a, a general situation, that's a common situation? That parents pick up the, the reins? Yeah. That, well, we have to, we, we, and it's, and it's hard. And, you know, we always say, Every family does what's best for them, and there's never any judgment because we, we do realize it's a, it's a lot of work, you know. It's, it's very challenging, and I don't – we just work really well as a team, and, and so, you know, we and, – and there's certain sacrifices that you make. And I think that if everybody wasn't on board, including Sophia, that, that it wouldn't be as easy, you know? Yeah, that, I think there's, there's families that don't work over the summer. I mean, it's not a thought in our mind. It's not fair to the other, yeah. I, 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 I mean, Sophia's doing work all summer. It's just, you know, we have a reading list. We have, we go over math. We go over, it's not just vacation. So maybe we just, that's just what we do. I don't know. I think definitely every parent shoulders more of the, the, load than if it was a, a neurotypical child. Yeah. But you know, you know, you say that you can, you, you've experienced a little of it. And I, I think that every parent who has a child who learns differently, there's, there's a common stress, there's a common worry, uh, and fear. And then you, you see your child and it's that just finding that path of what works for them. I think that's a common thread, you know, it's no, it's no, it's not lesser or more. It's just, it's a, it's a common thread. Yeah. You want your child to be happy. You want your child to, uh, succeed and, and, and have them be proud of themselves, whatever that is, whatever they choose. So you set them up for that. And some, sometimes your child has a couple more obstacles to move around or just 
work differently and, and you figure that out, right? And it is about creating a more inclusive environment, a more inclusive society, you know, to where we just understand that everybody's different. And if someone has a different need, that it's, it just doesn't hold the weight that it does right now. You know, yeah, and, that and it's a totally accepted. I mean, when we grew up, I, I didn't know the word autism. And I see kids at Liam's school and Sophia's school that maybe have autism, I don't know, or kids I know that do have autism. And I go, well, I grew up with kids that work that way and, and move that way and talk that way. And they could become the Steve Jobs. There oh. wasn't such a need to label, I think. Yeah. Unfortunately, then maybe there wasn't the supports that are needed, but there wasn't that need to label and put somebody in a box and determine who they were before they even show you who they are. That's really interesting. So Julie, with it, you guys, you did 32 drafts. Yes. What were you looking for in those 32 drafts? You know, Mark is a novelist, most famously, and a poet also famously but he had not written a screenplay before. And the way that Rowanna Ben, who is a fantastic producer, and I, uh, when I say 32 drafts, they weren't full drafts. They were piece by piece. So we would work on one section and then we go back and we'd say, okay, now we're gonna work on this section. And we were looking for a kind of coherence structurally, a journey that was coherent to the piece. And the thing that we worked hardest on both in the writing stage and also in the shooting stage and also in the editing stage was the moment of the push. So it was getting to the point where that was earned because that was the one thing that Mark would never compromise on uh, was that he was gonna push him. <laughs> <laughs> and so we would be like, are you sure that he has to? Is this really necessary, Mark? Because obviously, you know, then and now all the issues of likability and how can you ever redeem the character that does that to his brother? And um, so I think that the main, the redrafting and then the in the shooting and then in the editing, that was kind of justifying that moment and, and keeping sympathy with the with Nick's character was the biggest overall challenge. Because, you know, if I ever tell anybody what's it about, yeah. they're, they're like, <laughs> he does what? You know, I mean, it's absolutely, it's kind of the most horrendous thing that you can think for anybody to do to their own brother it is, I don't think there's any other film in existence where something so heinous is done and yet you still remain sympathetic to the person that's done it. And so I think that that was the hardest thing to achieve, really. And that was the main focus of our work. But when I was watching it again, I was just like, oh, Mark, Mark Haddon, you are such such a beautiful writer you really really are you know and I was just blown away by his talent and I've been in touch with him recently in fact and he's just like no I didn't really like screenplay writing so I don't think I'll go back and do it again but I've become I'm like oh I really want to kind of try and persuade Mark 
to come back to it because I loved the nuance of his writing. And even there was a lot of things that were scripted that maybe appeared not to be scripted. So things like when he's painting on the floor, the figure on the floor, or the fireworks moment. And there's, there's a lot of like little nuance pieces that were Mark Haddon. Um, and he rewrote all of the voiceover when we were in post-production. He came into the edit suite with us and we would say, Mark, we need a new bit here. Uh, that's going to fill in this bit here. And, and he would just, he would sit and he'd write the voiceover for us, shape it, rewrite it, you know, to justify the push again and bringing his own very unique style to it. So much of it's Mark Haddon's voice. It really is. You know, you say to him, you know, curious incident of the dog in the nighttime, where did that come from? And he, he or do you know somebody? who's autistic or do you know what, how much research did you do and I always remember he he was like no I just think about I just it comes out of me I'm putting myself imaginatively in those positions it does it's not research-based experience it's it's not at all it's just him his empathy that he has that is just truly remarkable when you uh, rewatched the film and you said there were a couple moments a couple of scenes where you kind of said you cringed and you thought well maybe parents of a child with down syndrome would would cringe who was the consultation in in that besides the actor who has down syndrome you could probably talk to him and his family how do you know if you're going to get it right i mean you got it right to us but how do you consult that we didn't we didn't we just simply had uh, tommy's family and tommy and that was it now rowanna who was the producer may have more consultation work but it was you know it was a long time ago and it was a different era. So, I mean, you wouldn't do that now. Uh, but it, we just wanted to tell that specific story. I'm sure Rowanna, as the producer, probably made sure she sent the script to relevant groups, but I wasn't part of that at all. I was just focused on telling the story with as much nuance as humanly possible. The two scenes that you talked about, the bus stop and then the tent, when you were filming them, did you feel any specific way? Did you feel like they were they were hard? Do you remember? No, I didn't. But then I think that's a good thing. I think that um, really a lot of it was so fast. Like it was a 23-day shoot. And I was just concentrating on getting it all in the can in as truthful a way as possible. And then you kind of become immune to the emotions um, and to the rawness of it because you've watched it so many times you've shot it and then you've edited it and you watch it over and over and over and over and over and so I'm really glad that I had this gap <laughs> and then going back to it again I was really pleased to have had that opportunity because I could just watch it almost like anybody else watching it. Do you think it was more impactful because Tommy had Down syndrome that his brother wanted to push him off the mountain? I think that to the world, yes. But I think that actually to Nick's character, it was not a relevant piece of the puzzle, <laughs> you know? Um, but I do think that to your ordinary viewer, it would appear to be incredibly, incredibly tough to take. But having been kind of living inside their sibling relationship with them it was a sibling thing 
I, I, I love your answers because that's absolutely that's because that's what I was wondering is, you know, the obviously the, the, the two scenes that you were wondering if they bothered us or uh, just even that his he was pushing his brother off the mountain, which is a, a horrible thing to do. Um, that the truth is, it shouldn't be impacted. It shouldn't be any worse than <laughs> I'm just going to push my brother off a mountain. That should the focus should be that he shouldn't push his brother off the mountain. It shouldn't be that he shouldn't push because he has Down syndrome. That's inclusion, that it doesn't bear more weight, as silly as that sounds. And I think yeah. that one of the great things is as I was watching it, I, I remember, and I did this to her in another movie, and she's like, Mom, I was like, no, I don't think he pushes him off the mountain. I'm, I'm, I was just like remembering, I'm like, no, he did, and then he did it. And I was like, oh, okay, I remembered wrong. But I think that it just is human and real to go, he finally realizes what he's doing is wrong. And then there's that surge of just being frustrated that that's what sparked him into the action, you know? So it's more a lesson in there's consequences for some of our actions that cannot be taken back. And that would be, luckily, his brother lived, whether his brother be typical or not, that letting that anger drive you was really the conversation that I had with Sophia afterwards, because he was all ready to pull back. He was ready to like, come on, get off the mountain, we're going to go home, realizing he was wrong. And that's the journey you hope that someone's going to have. And uh, it was really just that not dealing with that anger that was planted and just grew over time to where he could just be pushed into a, a rage. And we shot that, I remember, we shot it in a number of different ways. So with a number of different possibilities to lean more into that kind of journey towards pushing him off. Or we did other versions where he just, that was all missed out and he just pushed him. So it was, yeah, it was a big, that was really hard. <laughs> Obviously it's hard. It's not something you have to do every day, but yeah. No, Julie, I think it was so well done. And uh, I just remember being very excited after I saw it. And it was it was early on. So it was at a point that, you know, now we've been able to really process this journey more and filter out some of the negativity or, or at least know how to manage it, the, the stuff that comes towards us. And I just appreciated an honest, true story about a complete family with all of their ins and outs and flaws and beauty. And you just don't, you don't see it. And maybe there's something else out there that I haven't seen, but. And well, you've like inspired me now because I'm, I'm thinking now, gosh, I'm going to go back to um, Mark and get him to write something else for me. That's what I'm going to try and do. <laughs> oh, well, it's really beautiful. And I particularly as a parent appreciated the honesty, just the different levels that we have to come from from just trying to just trying to, to do it right. And when you fail, although it shouldn't weigh any more on you, but when you fail and you have a child with different needs, it does. I don't know why it does. Maybe I can make it not, but it does. And I love that you did that. And I loved that both sons were able to talk to their parents. And it's almost a story of communication and seeing each other and allowing each other to just be 100 percent uh which honestly a lot of times in a when it's typical relationships that happens more because people are willing to argue out points and we pull away from those hard conversations 
And I just really appreciated the honesty of it. For me to have something I could see and relate to, but then also to put that into the world. So the first thing people are going to say is like, oh, well, that never happens. And then I get to say that story is real. Every emotion there is valid. And it's nice to be able to do that because most people are able to do that. Do you think that there'll be a time where this anxiety or pressure that you're feeling, do you, do you see a time when that will be lessened for you? We're working on it daily. <laughs> we, uh, we just had an episode with uh, Mei Zen, who is a Zen Buddhist priest, because, you know, we were finding that a lot of the residual, the negativity that we experience, like we, we see, especially and most prevalently in the school system, we see individuals who are just lifted up as either a great teacher or, you know, and just celebrated. And we see the not nice side of those people. Sometimes. Sometimes we have our, our child discriminated against by those people. And it's really hard to, um, you know, if you can think of sitting in a room where somebody's just being celebrated and called the best human in the world, and you are looking at them knowing that they did something horrible to your child. And the feelings that come with that, you know, because you don't want to, not you don't want to slander because of any other reason, but you don't want to just perpetuate negativity, because it doesn't help anybody or anything. So we actually had a guest on to discuss that in hopes of finding a way to cultivate ease and peace, but also to be able to give that to other listeners too, because we know that they're probably experiencing those same kind of emotions. Yeah, I mean, the the stresses and anxiety can come from advocating. Uh, but like Mazen said, advocating is just show up. Show up and be there. And I think we do put pressure on ourselves, but we've chosen to become activists in this arena and also in other parts of our life. And so as someone that wants to stand up for someone and point out an injustice, it can be it can be stressful. I feel like there's a finish line. I believe that there'll be equality and I believe there'll be justice and that a uh, concept, a universal societal concept will more align with what's truthful and what where we're coming from. And so that would be a lot. Of, I, I've, I've stopped doing the, you're doing that and you're doing that and you're doing that. You just can't do that. You can't do that in, in your life. And you learn that. If it's politics, if it's whatever it is, you, you do that, you're going to drive yourself crazy. There's always going to be someone that does something that you go, come on, we all know that's wrong. That's just. You can't own it or just, let it take too much from you. That's a percentage you. that you just got to let slide. But yeah, calling out real injustices is something that I'll continue to do. I, I'm attempting to not be riled up about it. And I've gotten a lot better. I mean, just growing as parents. I remember the day that I was walking on campus and said, I'm just not going to be angry anymore. Because you, it can make you angry because it's wrong, you know. And I decided, I think when Liam was in kindergarten, that I just wasn't going to be angry. And I was just going to try to find a peaceful way to exist and make a change. And it's not anxiety to me, but I, I'm driven to give information to people. I'm driven to to give information to, and to society, think, and then you also, but also to parents. Yeah, deciding instead of focusing on, like you know, the wrong is there, but we can support other parents to help them have the tools they need. Yeah, part of that information is how do you deal with it and not have the anxiety. 
when um, my older son was much younger, he was going to this specific Montessori school. He was having issues because of his dyslexia. And I found a video that was like 15 minutes long. That was an informational video about, you know, where he was coming from, what he was going through and how to help mitigate anything. And I took it, I was really proud. I took it to the school. I said, you know, it'd be great if the teachers could watch this because it'll really help. It'll help you to understand what's going on. And I went back like three weeks later, I said, has anybody watched the video? And they're like, no, nobody, nobody's had time. And so I said, well, if they could, it would be really, I mean, literally it was 15, 10, 15 minutes long. And then I went back another two weeks and it just became completely apparent to me that they just didn't care. They weren't going to watch this video. Uh, they weren't going to change or accommodate in any way. And uh, you just have to, and I was, I was like upset, <laughs> but you just got to realize some people are just, I don't know, those teachers were on that particular path. They were very clear that that was the path that they wanted to be on. And, you know, why was it my place to tell them to like open, <laughs> open their perceptions? So I, I can understand that a lifetime of that is extremely uh, exhausting. I think that that is the mindset of a lot of teachers and, and we respect good teachers. We definitely respect the, the good teachers, but there are teachers who they're not used to being responsible to being to being open. You know, that's not that's not what they felt like their job uh, entails. I hope that's changing. I feel like there's, there's more conversations about it. But I think that that is unfortunate that there are some teachers that have the mindset of, I don't need to do it. I teach and this is what I do. And sometimes it's because teachers have been teaching for, for really 30 years time. or something. And, and then that was the case with this particular school. And they were very, uh, there's certain school systems, this was a Montessori school, and I think they were very rigorous. Maria Montessori, this is how we do it. We don't do anything even a little bit different to what Maria said. And it was, um, it was really a hard time. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry that you had to experience that. I, I do remember last time we talked that you, you said that uh, it's hard for parents to admit sometimes that it's not working. And I think you're absolutely right. I wanted to talk to you about about that. Like um, you had to make the choice to pull him from the mainstream. And uh, I just wanted to talk to you about that. Both my kids. I mean, it was just with my older one, it was less liberating than for the younger one. Funnily enough, the same school. <laughs> But with the younger one, it was the change was so immediate in his demeanor when he went to the school where he's he is right now. He just suddenly just his whole spirit just lifted within a week of him being at this. He's now at a school called Frostig. It's just a wonderful school. And it was just a transformational experience for him and just so good for his confidence because he spent a long time thinking that he was, you know, not as bright as his colleagues. He was surrounded by a lot of kids who didn't have dyslexia and he did. And how does that make you feel? 
so ultimately, yes, that was our experience. I think that's what people don't understand when they're not creating an inclusive environment, when they're not supporting the various ways which students learn, is what they're planting in that child, what it does to their, their self-esteem, for their worth, for their perception of what their ability is. Dyslexia you just have to find the way that your child can learn. There's been research on dyslexia now, and it's not an unknown, and it's it's just you're learning differently. If you learn differently, for some reason, there's this thought of let's shine a light, mm-hmm. make this child feel as if, not that they're different because everybody has differences, but th- the message is you're wrong. There's something wrong with you. And well, when I tell, if I tell people I'm, I'm a visual learner, I like to see, see things. If I said that to people, people go, Ooh, good. You know about yourself and you're learning. Oh, that's great. You know, but there's a great group that do workshops for parents of kids with dyslexia. So they have, I don't know if you've come across this, but the very stations in a room, obviously pre COVID, um, but you go from station to station and you're treated as a kid in school. There's a group of four or five and there's one person playing the teacher. And so she'll go, okay, Jamie, can you read this out loud, please? And then Jamie will just be able to read it out loud because Jamie is really good at interpreting codes. (laughs) And then she came, she would say to me, Julie, can you read this out loud, please? And I, I was just looking at this and it was written in code that I could not, I couldn't understand. I couldn't decipher it. And this went on. So there was always the one in the group that could get it, which was so frustrating because I think, what's wrong with me? And that was one of the most profound experiences for me in terms of trying to really understand what was going on. Because the teacher would say, now, come on, Julie, we've learned this already, haven't we? We've learned this before. So try really hard. Now look at it tell me what it says. And I would be just, it really, really made you want to cry when you put yourself in the shoes of your child in that situation, because the teacher's very well-meaning, you know, not at all, you know, unkind, but just not at all understanding the situation (laughs) or the world from that specific person's point of view. And I think that's what it's all about, isn't it? It's about putting yourself in the shoes of the different learner and just trying to really get inside that worldview. You said last time that everyone deserves a place in the classroom. So let's discuss that and and how much it impacts society at its foundation, the inclusive classroom. Uh, What I'm hoping I want my kids to advocate for themselves. And I think that that's something that when you're a teenager specifically is very, very hard for you to do. It's very hard to say, look, I learn differently. And what you're saying doesn't make any sense to me. Can you teach it to me in this way or this way or this way, because I'm not getting it right now. And I think that's the thing that more than anything that I want just in life, just all through life, I want that is, I think, a skill that should be taught in schools, you know, Um, and it doesn't have to be confrontational. It can just be just a simple, 
I'm unable to learn in the way that you're teaching this to me, but this would help, you know, just very open like that. Um, because I found that sometimes, especially with teenagers, they don't want to stand out. They don't want to be having extra time. They don't want to have to have an audio book. They don't want to do their exams in a separate room. You know, there's lots of different accommodations available, but it's difficult for them to advocate for themselves because it will mark them out as different and therefore inferior to their colleagues when they just need slightly different accommodations. I think that's it, is that the difference should shouldn't be something that's made into something bad, you know? No. That's kind of the inclusion model is that we all are together. So then we all know each other and yeah. it's all okay. Yeah, exactly. Thank you, Julie, for giving us another afternoon. We didn't get around to Bridgerton, but this has been such a great, because I felt like when we got off there, were, I had so many questions still about your movie and coming down the mountain because it is so impactful and so honest. And I appreciate your conversation on inclusion. No, 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 absolutely. I'm so happy to be helpful in any small way. I'm a big fan of yours, so thank you. You know, you're very talented. You, you made that short film, was, it lived with me. It absolutely lived with me. So I hope you keep finding time for yourself to be creative within all of this. Take care. Please follow us on Twitter at If We Knew Then Pod. And you can drop us a line on our Facebook page at If We Knew Then Pod, or visit our website, ifweknewthen.com, to send us an email with questions and comments. And you can join our mailing list there and get alerts of future podcast episodes. All these links will be added to this episode's show notes. Thank you again, and we look forward to you joining us on the next episode of If We Knew Then. Come and talk.